Man, I missed you guys. It has been quite a while. It's been a month. Long story short, let's just clear the air with this. I got sick for about a month. Then Andy got sick for a second. It was a lot. So we really didn't record any podcasts basically for the past month. But we are back now. We are rolling. We're ready to hit the ground running. So be on the lookout for all of the podcasts because we are going to do a bunch. We're going to try to fit in as many as we can before the year ends. It should be pretty exciting. I'm saying that even though I haven't booked any coming up yet, other than we do have one tonight. So if you're listening to this on Friday, there should be one tonight. So be on the lookout for that. But yeah, I hope everybody had a happy Thanksgiving. As far as I know, our guest today is up in his race. He's running for the Eureka City Council for the Ward 3 seat. And last I checked, which it was updated on November 23rd. That's the most recent one that I could find. But according to the results from November 23rd, he is up in his race. I believe Juan is also up in his race for the clerk, recorder, and registrar. And I believe that Renee is also up in her race for the Eureka City Council Ward 5 seat. So, without any further ado, please give it up for G. Mario Fernandez. I think I have heard of that. Yeah, but I haven't been to any. <laughs> yeah. Was last night kind of your first outing back into the show realm? Uh, I, I mean, we went to... I'm sorry. Can you pull that just a little bit closer? Yeah. There we go. Uh, we went to... Yeah, I think it was 80s night last month. So oh, that was, would be a fun one. Yeah, yeah, and that was, again, also in Arcata. 80s night. Did you get dressed up for that? No. I would have gotten decked <laughs> out. I, for I, Halloween one year, I... I dressed up as a rocker and had, I went full wig. I had a guitar. Yeah. Unfortunately with, with COVID-19, I added 19 plus some. So there's a lot of clothes that that don't fit like they should. And uh, I just don't want to invest until hopefully I can lose a little more weight. I think, I think everybody felt that. Yeah. The the COVID weight gain from being locked down. What else are you going to do? You're at home. You might as well start cooking up some food. That's pretty much what it came down to. Yeah. So. It's a weird time. Weird time. Yeah, I'm not a master chef whatsoever, but there is food that I like to make. So yeah. I mean, a lot of it was carb heavy. <laughs> that's the problem. Carbs are the best. Well, yeah, because that's the comfort food right there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm my, I'm a go-to for pasta. That's, yeah. Yeah. Get a nice red sauce going. Um, I forget what the Italian equivalent of it is, but, you know, add, add some pepper flakes. Uh, for me, it's add a little, add a little bit of hot sauce. Just kick that spice level up. I do hot sauce on my mac and cheese. Yeah. That, that's great. I see. I grew up with the ketchup. So now I add both. <laughs> can't break away from those habits. You put ketchup on it too? I, I can't. I can't get past it. Okay. It's just. <laughs> I know people that put ketchup on their eggs. And I'm always like, oh, I don't know if I can do that. <laughs> so how is the campaign going? I'd like to think it's going pretty well. I mean, it's like you pointed out earlier before I think we started this, the you know, it's a small town, so it's not like we do any polling. So we've just got to kind of rely on a lot of anecdotal word of mouth, a lot of uh, just uh, just a lot of anecdotes. And so it gets difficult to rely on that. That's not something I like to do. And so people ask me that question a lot. How do you think it's going? I think it's going okay based on the conversations I have, but you all support me. <laughs> so that makes it a little difficult to be like, 
I've at the doors, I've only had one person explicitly say no. That they're not voting for you. Right. But they also didn't seem to be a fan of my opponent. It's like, well, maybe that's a wash. Maybe they won't vote. But uh, stayed and talked with them for about 10, 12 minutes even after that. So maybe some ground was broken. I don't know. Do you feel like it's close? What is your interpretation of where it stands right now? I, I mean, you look at the numbers from prior elections and, and the ones that I really like to focus on were 2018 because that's when it became a true ward before that just feels like it was kind of a mess. You had to live in the, in the ward, but everybody in the city voted for you, which made it a little odd. And now you have to live in that district and only vote for that district, which makes a little more sense to me since that's what I've been exposed to in, in, in politics and campaigns that I've run. Uh, but looking at those numbers, Natalie did a great job with two other opponents in that district. Now it's just me and one of the same opponents. And so it's getting that turnout. And I feel that folks just aren't there like they were in 2018. Like there's still a passion or not a passion. There's still a will to vote, but that passion and that upset on the tail end of 2016 going into 2018. And even now, four years later, people are just kind of like, ah, COVID-19, I'm burnt out. Current politics, I'm burnt out. <laughs> you think they're just tired? I, I honestly do. It's, I don't think it's any personal withdrawal, but it's like, you know, spoon theory. All right. How much of this am I able to take at this point? How much of this energy do I have left to contribute to this? I'll say yes or no to vote for someone, but not going to do much else beyond that. And even at the doors uh, right now, when I'm doing walks, it seems that folks are willing to take the information in a very passive way. Like, here you go. Do you have any questions for me? No, no, I'll look you up later. All right. Well, just no. I'm Mario. <laughs> Almost like they're just waiting. Like, yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. Thanks. Thanks. You can go now. Yeah. And even now, when you look at the the ballots that are coming in, you would think like, oh, all mail elections moving forward into the future here. People would be signing off on them early, sending them in. 5% for all of Humboldt so far. 5% so far. So far. And the ballots went out the 11th? No, they went out that Friday. So I think it was October 7th. 7th. Yeah. Because I, <laughs> uh, very fortunate uh, in, in 2018 when I ran for school board, I timed it so that the ballots went out the same day as my mailers, and that happened again this time. So it's a nice little bonus. It, it, it is. It is. Because at least everything's dropping together, it seems. And you were with the school board. How long were you doing that? I still am. So I moved here in 2017 for work for a union job, uh, an organizer for SEIU 2015 for the home care workers. So I was up here a year and I'm sorry, can you just pull that? Just, you want to really eat the mic. Okay. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah. You can uh, pull it out to whatever's more comfortable for you. You're not right, going to break the stand. Is that good? Yep. Okay. Uh, so when, when I moved up here for that particular position, it was to be the political organizer. So working with local organizations, working with local electeds. And so it was just kind of developing, uh, the, the relationship between my union members, local electeds, getting them to build that grassroots power. And, and for me, it was just one of those things where I saw like, well, school board, I am passionate about education. I really do. I've only lived here in this community for almost a year now. I like it. I'd like to contribute to it in some way in addition to the work I do. So let's try this. And, and school board, uh, no one expected, again, the pandemic. That's just going to be looming over us for a while. But at that time, I was, I was really excited. And it was also a position that I didn't know 
I had won until the day before the results were due to the state. So election night, I'm losing, but over the next few weeks, the gap is closing, but I've already written it off. And I think one of the final, one of the tallies before the final tally was I was down by like 18 or 28 votes. And I'm just like, oh, hell, we're done. <laughs> we're done with this. All right, I'll move on to the next thing. We'll figure it out. And then I'm at uh, our all staff meeting in Southern California. And I get, uh, I get the email that, oh, the re final results are done. And I'm like, all right, let's see how many I lost by. Was it 10? And I went by 118. And then just moments later, <laughs> the superintendent calls a little surprised himself saying, well, you've won. Uh, we would have invited you to stuff over the last few weeks, but we all assumed that this, this race was not yours. And so now we've got to make a rush here to get you more acclimated to the position that you're going to be taking on. It's like, oh, great, more work. Yeah, let's do this right now over the holidays. And at the 12th hour too, right? Yeah. <laughs> because immediately following that was the organizational meeting. I think it may have been like December 14th, 2018, something like that. But almost 10 days later, it's just like, oh, wow, I'm really just going right into this. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's one of the arguments, right? Is that the election process is a slow one, and counting ballots is slow. It's got to be it's time consuming. Yeah, yeah, and I'm fine with that uh, as an average voter. <laughs> yeah, but when you're running, it's a when you're more, a candidate, it's just like, yeah. oh my god, what has happened? Yeah, can we speed the process up a little bit, guys? <laughs> Especially in that situation where you feel like you're down, and you kind of just write it off, like I lost. You know, I'm behind in the numbers. We'll just. We'll just write it off. Just let me know election night. Am I over 50% or am I not? And, 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 and I wasn't um, even. So, so this isn't the first election for me in this county. Uh, in the primary, I ran to be on the uh, Democratic Central Committee, which I'm now the chair of, coincidentally. I was not expecting that at the time. It was just to be a member and have a voice and a vote on that particular committee. And I was losing that also election night. But the gap was closing and uh, things looked a bit better for me a few weeks later, as opposed to finding out the day before the results are due. But yeah, it's, it's, it's anxiety provoking. It's aggravating. <laughs> but as a voter, you're just like, okay, cool. I'll tune into this when the results are done. As a candidate, you're just kind of wanting to look over and over. You kind of fixate on, or at least I do. I fixate on it. Is it, is it done? Is it over? <laughs> Am I past that threshold of no return? are the statistics in my favor. It's almost like when people are posting on social media and you start getting likes and you start getting comments and you're just refreshing to try to see, <laughs> oh, what's next? What did somebody else say? Yeah, a little bit, except there is no thumbs up and there's no comments. It's just pure math. And you're just like, oh, this is, uh, I, I thought math was my friend, but it's not right now. <laughs> Were there any parallels between running the campaign for that committee versus running the campaign for this? Uh, well, so each campaign has been a little different, oh, man, as much as I would love people to pay more attention to education, that's just, that just hasn't been the case, um, uh, which, which is a bit disheartening because it has such an impact on our community. And as much as we like to say that, yes, you know, we're here for the children, we want to do right by them, at least when it comes to voting and learning about candidates, people are focused on city council county board of supervisors and everything up. That's not to say that it's less important by any means, but just the focus of every day. Well, if I don't have kids, how does this impact me? Even if I have kids in there, you know, I want these city programs to run so I can get to work better and I can drop them off easier. And so we do have parents on the board 
but but even even trying to interact with the parents that that aren't it it, it can be i don't want to say it's a fight but it, it, there's a lot of education that has to be done on how this impacts them as parents and how it impacts their children like they're aware of it but it's just like oh that's another meeting at the end of my work day and my kids are already done with school why do i want to go attend this why do i want to be involved with this it's like well there's a number of reasons you should be but i understand and we could do a lot better on the school board to communicate i, I think that's true of any of our governmental entities in this county we could do a lot better to communicate can you andy can you turn his noise gate level a little bit lower um do you think that's the root of that problem is just the communication of why it's important to the parents and why they should be focused on that I don't is that think, the disconnect there i i think it's a core issue i mean there's a number of other issues too like you know we have uh we have families here that english isn't the first language and there's no mandate that we have to communicate to them in their home language until we meet a certain threshold of the percentage of the district and we're not at that threshold and so we do what we can where we can with translation but a lot of it comes down to the funding that we have too uh, our board is very focused on doing right by the children making sure that they're acclimated to what they need making sure that they're successful but then we have made improvements with how we communicate but again, it's not that we're picking every subject because we have to be cautious. We don't want to overload the parents either. But for instance, we are going to be talking about the attendance boundaries for elementary schools. Now, we did something similar probably about three years ago. This was before the pandemic uh, for middle school. And we didn't really do our diligence from my perspective in putting out the information to parents saying how this would impact them, how it would work. <clears throat> but we went through the process over the course of many months to, to figure out, okay, how do we want to shift these because we want to try and balance the schools. And after we went through all of that, there were parents who were upset. They didn't feel that they had been communicated to. It's like, you know, I understand your perspective. We could have done more in terms of social media, letters home, that type of thing, but we didn't really do anything like that. And so I'm curious as I'm transitioning away from the board because win or lose for city council, I'm off the school board. And so it's, it's, it's those type of things where I'm just like, oh, man, we're not really quite past that communication gap yet. So I'm really hoping whoever uh, steps into my place or, or wins this uh, contested seat for district five, trustee area five for the school board, uh, they can carry that forward. Attendance boundaries in terms of the amount of school the children can miss? No, attendance boundaries in terms of where is your home school? So, you know, we'll narrow it down to, oh, we have Zane, we have oh, Winship. physical attendance. Physical okay. attendance, yeah. Yeah, a lot of, you're, so for people that don't know, we're talking about Eureka City Schools. Eureka City Schools, correct. Yeah. yeah. I, it's hard. Even if you have kids, it's hard because you're working. Mm -hmm. And so then, like you said, you don't want to go to another meeting to learn about this program that the school needs or the funding that the school needs to do this. You've got your own problems. Is your kid going to school? Okay, great. Yeah. Is the school functioning? Okay. Then that's the extent of what I need to know. Did my kid have a bad day? Yeah. Please don't take it out on the teacher. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially middle school. Every, all middle schoolers have bad days. <laughs> middle school is, those teachers deserve some awards for dealing with middle schoolers. 
that's just a crazy time. Uh, th- th- those are some of my favorite kids to deal with, though. Really? Well, everybody I, I, I've talked to you says that, and I'm from an outside perspective, you couldn't pay me enough money to deal with middle schoolers. Well, when I well, well, one, I'm not teaching them. Two, I'm not taking them home. I will gladly be that crazy uncle, hanging out with them, hearing all the weird stuff they have to say. I love that about them because they're still finding themselves. They're still developing how they understand sarcasm. Trying to use sarcasm. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's just it's just that development of self that I really I'm, I'm enthralled with as they're going through it. So why did you initially get involved with the school board? What made you want to run for that position? Was it just you wanted to help these kids, or you were interested in providing more material for them, or getting funding for the schools? What what drove you to that? For me personally, it was the idea of that. Even though I know we have parents on that school board, it's it's the perspective of well you, you're doing right you're doing everything you need to by the kids you know at the end of the day the the trustees are responsible for the fiduciary elements of the district you know we have to make sure we're solvent we have to do everything that we can uh, especially when it comes to making sure that the programs and resources are available for children but how do we do that from the perspective of the adults from the teachers and staff because yes, we can be single-minded. We can be lost in that vision. And I don't want to say that there's a problem in that, but you're missing out on the elements that severely impact how a lot of this is executed. And so I've been accused of, you know, oh, well, that you're the labor guy. Of course, you're going to take their perspective. It's like, well, no, 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 it's not unilaterally. The unions aren't always right. And that's why we have, you know, we have a dialogue with them. But you have to look at it from their perspective. If your teacher isn't feeling prepared, if your teacher is overworked, if, you're, if your lunch person doesn't feel that they have the resources that they need, or your office person is running interference for all these children in the classroom, like it really just cascades. And so if, I, I believe the phrase I've heard thrown around, you know, if we want to make this a district of destination, then we need to make it a district of destination for the teachers that we have hopefully graduating from uh, Cal Poly at this point, coming over into our district or even from outside of the district. You, know, you want to make sure that they're uh, paid well, that they're benefited well, and that they're rested. And, and then that's going to be the one that's going to be difficult is, all right, as we come out of the pandemic, what do we need? Because we're still assessing that. We're not the only school district doing that. And we know <clears throat> as much as we are impacted by how we're judged at the state and the federal level for how well this, uh, the students are doing in math and English, it's it, it's really going to come down to mental health and well-being. Are they prepared for this, students and adults? And we need to have those resources ready for them. Do you think that that is a direct causal relation because of COVID, that those relationships need to be there now? Or has that always been something that's needed but not necessarily supplied for the students? I mean, look at what we've... <laughs> look at what adults and students have gone through from 2008 to now just 14 years uh, we had turmoil from the recession turmoil from the 2016 election regardless of which political aisle you fall into and then the turmoil of this uh, of this pandemic and so it's just been like this slog of mental health just just like one blow after another to how you're feeling and your well-being and the last two years, and even as we're finally getting away from it, it seems, or at least as it becoming endemic and less severe, you know, there's still a need to just be like, can I catch my breath for a moment? <laughs> and, and I think, I feel that COVID just amplified a lot of the problems. Not that they were buried uh, per se, but that it made it more observable. 
In these students? In the students, in the faculty, in the staff. I mean, we, I feel, and it, and again, it's one of those things, it's a small community. I could be wrong just again, uh, but, but I feel we're talking about mental health a lot more than we have probably since I was a kid. Even since I was a kid. Yeah. Even in that short time, it seems like the focus is really on it now. It's mm -hmm. got a spotlight. Which is a good thing. And it's, so my background is psychology and politics. Uh, I created my own major through San Francisco State University. And I transferred there as a psych major, was very much enraptured by the political scene at the time because this was 2010, 2011 as Occupy was occurring. So I wanted to figure out how is there a way to kind of bridge these two. And so when I look at things, it tends to be from the perspective of small group psychology and like, what can we do to make improvements? What can we do to get people the resources that they need so that way they better... It's it's not necessarily like, okay, your individual growth, but how are we going to grow together in a positive way? Is that possible? Do you anticipate the effects of COVID? Do you think those effects are going to be lasting past this current generation? Do you think they're going to be able to recover from, from whatever trauma or mental health ailments are a result of that? Yeah, yeah, I mean, children are resilient. You know, some adults are too, others need time. Uh, that's not to say that everyone's going to have the same experience. Uh, but I think children in a lot of ways are very resilient. And, and one of the things I like to do is it, everybody say, oh, this is so unprecedented. We've never had anything like this. Well, we did almost 100 years ago with the flu epidemic. Granted, you know, two different strains, two different viruses, but we had something similar going on. Technology may have been different at the time compared to now, but we had something similar to reflect on. And so what we have to do is just be wary of not only the physical impacts that we may see moving into the future, but again, the psychological toll of the stay-at-home orders, of distance learning, of just not being able to interact physically for even that limited amount of time. Because if you recall, you know, we went really into lockdown mode between March and April started easing some of the restrictions summer happened people got sick tried to lock down again halloween comes around another explosion <laughs> of of cases and so we're we're not built to be isolated whether we're introverts or not there's still that element of wanting to interact uh, especially in person but uh, it's it's going to be a difficult next few years, if not a decade, just to, again, personal perspective of just learning how to, to acclimate to one another again in a civil way. Yeah, that's one of the things I've heard is that, especially in relation to these kids, in order to catch them up, we're going to need to supply more resources because you can catch them up, but you have to also acknowledge that there has been a toll taken on them through this, especially the younger kids, right? And so you need those resources to get them back where they should be. And I guess gauging from what you're saying, I was wondering how accurate that is, where you are a little more close to them than I am. Or do you think it's not going to be necessary to take extra steps? And they just, because they are younger and they can bounce back, that just getting them back in the schools will be enough to kind of get everybody back on track. Uh, well, yeah, again, especially for the younger folks, I think like, <clears throat> you know, transitional kindergarten through like first, second grade, 
they're going to they're be a little more resilient. Oh, absolutely. Especially because it's those formative years, you know, they haven't they haven't developed that hard outer candy coated shell, however we want to refer to it. Uh, but but for students that are that are older, that are still developing, that are like, well, this isn't how I'm used to doing it. It's just like got to make some changes. And and it's, again, it's it's putting those resources in. I know it sounds so vague, but that's because there's so many resources uh, out there in terms of not necessarily what's available, what what can be done. You know, is it a matter of having one mental health professional on campus? Is it a matter of having a teacher's aide in the classroom? You know, how what is it that we need to put at each site to make sure that uh, students, faculty, and staff are prepared, that they're comfortable? That they know that they're going to be, uh, that they know that they're going to be safe as things move on and progress. I said those younger kids are resilient, and actually, in thinking about that, I am a little worried with how only seeing people in masks affected them or will affect them in the long term. Because if you think you're a young kid in kindergarten and for a solid two years, everybody you see outside of your house has a mask on, what does that do to you psychologically? What effect does that have? Long term. Well, I think it's, and again, you know, the the younger you are, it just might be one of those things like, yeah, oh, that was a weird time of my life. You just brush it off. Yeah, but 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 there's going to be probably from from some perspective, uh, just picking up on certain facial cues, facial affect. It's like, oh, I'm not I'm not used to that yet. What is that? <laughs> are you angry? Are you upset with me? Just those type of things. Um, and I know that that was something that was discussed very early on, especially with kindergarten children, kindergarten age children was. Well, you know, uh, it's going to make it difficult for them to learn how to interact when this is what we do during those formative years. Uh, but I, I don't think it's going to just intrinsically hold them up. And it's, you know, just like I was saying, they're resilient. They'll, they'll learn and they'll persevere. Whereas uh, the older kids, I believe, have already grown past that. And now it's just kind of resetting and getting comfortable again. Has that been a hard reset? Has it been hard getting kids back into school? After doing the online or the hybrid, <laughs> I, it, there were so many students who wanted to go back. There were so many teachers. I, every teacher, I believe, wanted to go back. It was just a matter of, am I safe? And so that's a perspective I had to take into account. Like, yes, the kids need to be back in the classroom. The kids want to go back to the classrooms. Is it safe for everyone? How do we mitigate? It's never going to be 100% uh, to the point that, Okay, we're COVID free. Nothing's ever going to happen. How do we mitigate it? And so I think as a district, we did a good job of that. Uh, I would have handled it a little differently in a tiered fashion. Let's go back K through three. Let's go back four, five. Let's go back six through 12, something like that. Uh, that's not the route we went. It's just kind of pull the ripcord. Uh, <clears throat> so I think kids were, I think kids were enthralled with going back. Like they were excited, but it's just like, whoa, 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 hold on. It's been almost. Pump the brakes. Yeah, yeah. It's been, it's been almost 18 months. Let's <laughs> And and so we're seeing, you know, not just here, but but behaviors that we haven't in in a while, or just behaviors from uh, from students that wouldn't normally behave a certain way. It's just because like getting that that release, that emotional catharsis, learning how to do that is not something that has been instilled yet. And uh, I mean, could easily point to some of the things that have gone around out here with, uh, you know, the text messaging about. Uh, was a shooting that was going to happen at, at one of the high schools or something in one of the one of the outlying districts and it's just like nothing came of that but it's just like what put that what put that student there mentally 
to want to do something like that to just scare his peers? Was it was it a result of of COVID and coming back into the classroom and not feeling that they were fully prepared? Or was it something even before that? Or was it something that just happened? And I don't think we're ever really going to know like where those behaviors come from. And that's going to be the difficult part. It's just kind of assessing the needs of each of these children or each, yeah, each child. I think Fortuna has had a number of those. Yeah, I wasn't going to name districts. Oh, but I'll, I'll <laughs> name fine, districts, of course. Yeah. yeah, just because, well, uh, it's, 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 it's not that I want to put uh, any particular district on blast. Just like everybody's got their own problems. I'm not here to cause problems for any particular district, but you know, that could easily happen in ours. I mean, hell, if anybody was unaware of it, we had a scare just a month or two ago because someone brought an airsoft onto the Eureka High campus. And it's just like, where are you in your thinking as a, as a, as a student, as, as a child? Because I, I mean, they're still, you know, they're still children at the end of the day because they're not an adult yet, but where where was your thinking going that you could bring this on campus thinking that it wasn't going to cause a problem if somebody saw it? And so to drag, you know, not only yourself into this mess, but also potentially other students, friend of yours who may have known about it and just put so much fear into other students, parents, like what was going on there? Well, and I'm guessing they obviously didn't keep it a secret. They were probably showing their friends. Yeah. Yeah. And for what reason? I don't know. Well, kids can be, they're not always the sharpest tool in the shed. Because they're kids. Well, yeah. And my perspective of it is, you know, how can we make this a learning experience? Because it's not so much that it's a zero tolerance policy, but it's like you've done something that created such an egregious situation we have to respond to it in kind. And no, go ahead. No, I was I was just going to ask, does the school have any new policies or the district have any new policies regarding school shootings where they have they are so prevalent nowadays especially with you know Uvalde being so fresh. Is there any additional steps or is it still kind of just you know lock the doors, count your students and sit tight until somebody shows up. We review our <clears throat> We review the safety plans annually. That's really as far as I want to go with it because I don't want to go into details about what it means. Uh, I, I mean, I believe they're publicly available, but it's not something you just want to throw right out there saying, well, this is what's going to occur as soon as we find out there's a weapon on campus. Yeah, there's going to be a lockdown, but you know, intrinsically, I don't want to get into the details of that. Understandably. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not fishing for details. <laughs> I was just curious if, if that is a constantly updating process. Because when I was back in school, it was, I don't think school shootings were as common when I was younger. Mm-mm. We did have, I mean, Sandy Hook, obviously, they were the big ones, but the response seemed like it was pretty much the same throughout my time. You know, lock K the doors. Yeah, lock the doors. Close the blinds. Don't leave the classroom. Them. Yeah. Put some desks in front of the door, hide under your desk, like the basics. Yeah, it's all pretty standard still. Yeah. Is it? I mean that's a hard that's that's a hard topic nowadays is the idea of school shootings because it is a re- reality that people have to deal with but nobody wants to think about them. And I loathe that it's a reality, but there's nothing I can do it about it or that there's nothing I can do about it as an individual myself other than say let's focus on mental health aspects of why these people are running onto a campus with a gun whether it's a student or stranger. It's like 
it's it's less about the access to the weapon and more about you know what access do they have to care for themselves do you think it's a big mental health factor in that i do because i don't think not sure how much flack i'd take for this but i don't sure how many of these uh shooters are in a right uh mental health space how many of them are just of sound mind to be going well i go onto campus i'm going to shoot students and anybody that comes at me doesn't sound like a sane individual no it doesn't yeah i'm a big believer that mental health is is a pretty strong factor in that i mean it it would make sense it'd be hard to ignore that aspect of it because we have what 300 and something million people and most people don't do that a strong majority don't and you have these outliers so what is making them do that? Well, I think it's safe to say they probably have some some issues that need to be dealt with. Yeah. And that's, it's weird because people don't want to draw the correlation between that and mental health. I don't know if it's a stigma thing. They don't want to attribute more stigma to mental health or they don't want people to not seek help for mental health. I'm not really sure where that. I mean, we talk about all the, all the access to mental health resources that we have even here in our area, but it's getting connected to them. Like we might have them, but do these people know that they're there? And again, it's like you pointed out, there may be a stigma to it. So how do we destigmatize it? I mean, how many people in leadership do we have that are like, yeah, I have acute depression or I have ADHD. How many people speak up to that? And and, and then those are minor compared to, well, I don't want to say minor because I don't want to stigmatize those either, but uh, it's, it's not that these folks would be, you know, going out getting their hands on a gun and then going and shooting up. But the, the folks that are, it's just like what steps have been taken to, to try and minimize that. Um, I can't think specifically of any of the recent shootings, but we've heard from a number of, of family members that are just like, Oh yeah, we knew something was happening or, you know, we, we informed the police that we wanted their gun to be taken away. And so something happened there was just like, but did anybody do anything to follow up with them, have that conversation with them about the resources that they <laughs> ought to have the conversations that they should be having if they're not. The follow through. Yeah. The follow through. We'd have to think somebody would notice, right? If, if a kid's acting a little strange, I don't think some, you go from being a great sociable, you know, outgoing kid. And then the next day you go shoot up a school, there's gotta be a progression, a downward spiral. You going to a dark place. And then that happens. I don't think it's just one day. Shit just hits the fan. No. I, yeah. I believe it is a progression that just occurs, you know, whether it's from uh, at home at school, something is clearly going on in the backgrounds of your life that isn't privy to other people that you're not sharing. Uh, and and you know that there's resources there, but it's just like, how do you speak up to that? Do you think it's a, a lack of funding for those resources? Do you think if they had more money behind them, they could reach some of these kids? Because that's not necessarily in terms of mental health, but you hear that with teachers, especially as they don't have enough funding for students. They're out there buying their own supplies to teach. Is that the same for these external resources? I think the money that we spend is sufficient to the point that we have programs. And again, it comes down to the outreach, the communication. Um, One thing I do believe that would help 
not necessarily solve, but mitigate, ameliorate a lot of these, a lot of these ongoing problems would be universal health care, not just health care for your physical health, but health care for your mental health. If we had these we had these programs properly funded that way, then how would you be unaware of it? Because you'd have to So there's a lot of programs that are offered through city and county but where are they we know that they're there you and i might know that they're there but if someone's on the street or someone's just not again of uh proper motive mind how do they know where to go where's that element of communication for them what is your take on the homeless encampment at six and west Ave? talking about taking advantage of resources and and especially amongst the homeless population what is your stance on the police removal of those those encampments. They so from what I'd heard is that the police had been going over there over the course of weeks, letting people know that they have resources, letting them know that uh, they could get connected to these other things. But again, you know, like we pointed out, there's a stigma to mental health. There's this issue of trust with law enforcement that isn't quite there, especially with the homeless. And so once the camp has been removed. Like, are they just going to fill right back in? Because that's what it feels like—a bit of game, a bit of a cat and mouse chase there. Even to the extent, like, I, I can't speak for law enforcement, but I could see something along the lines occurring that, all right, we're clearing out this camp, and just kind of leaving it as that. Like, we're not telling you not to return, but okay, where, where are we supposed to go? Well, we're telling you not not to return. <laughs> so, my. My thoughts, my perspective on it is that there needs to be something more permanent for these class of people that either are unable to integrate into our culture or unwilling. At the end of the day, there are just going to be some people that I don't want to do that type of city living. I don't want to have that uh, type of life. I'm just happy here where I am. I'm content. Okay. There's a few there's a few rules we would like you to follow then keep it clean and use those as restrooms over there uh, for the folks that are unable. I know there are some issues with the Cal courts pro or the care courts program that are going to be started here either over the next year and a half or very soon. I'm just blanking on the timeline here, but that's something that the state's implementing. And so it's getting the people that are to an extent uh, either unable to recover themselves through drug abuse or some other mental health issues, getting the court to mandate that they receive these particular resources to better themselves. And so with that in place, if they choose to continue to camp, that's great. They know where the resources are and how to do that. If they uh, want to acclimate into the type of living that you and I do in the city or outside of it, then uh, there is going to be the housing program through some of the hotels uh, that I know is going to be offered. So it's kind of figuring out how we can do that through a permanent encampment. Because, again, at least they have this space that is theirs that they can call home for the amount of time that they need to. Do you, in that situation specifically, do you think they should have removed them? Not in the fashion that they did, no. Meaning meaning that there should have been more time built into it. 
But there was there was that lead up time, right? The police did. My understanding was over the the coming months, mm-hmm. they had gone out there. They had sent out resource oh, was it, workers. Was it months? Because I'd heard weeks. So it I might have been weeks. I, okay. Yeah, I know that there, at least there was a period of lead up before they didn't just go in and say, "Okay, we're here to clean everybody out." Right. But where are we to go? Oh, well, there are resources here and there. But it's like, all right, but where do we go in that meantime? My understanding was that the homeless population there just there was no follow through on their behalf that EPD had gone out there, provided resources, had taken people, I believe, but there was just not a significant follow-through amongst that population. And so then what do you do at that point? Like you said, if they don't want the help, how do you handle those people? Well, is there a permanent place for them, though? That's the thing. A lot of things that are being offered are transitory. So, you know, even Betty Chin, you know, as great of a program as it is, it's not meant to be permanent. And, you know, I can understand that. It's a private organization with... You know, largely subsisting on donations. But what does the city have set up for these people that aren't going to be able to be put into housing right away? Because again, there's a process to everything. And there's also, you know, you're also having to try and stigmatize yourself at that point if you're saying like, yes, I have an addiction issue. Because do you see it yourself as an addiction issue? Or is it a mental health issue? How do you get all that done in the course of a few weeks? The, the, the folks that I know, the friends that I've had, nobody's been able to resolve any sort of issue like that, whether it's around mental health or addiction, in a matter of weeks. And so getting them connected to these services, like, yes, I'm great. I'm, I'm grateful that EPD is pointing them in the right direction with the help of the county. But in that meantime, in between, where are they to stay if they can't stay in that camp? Is there somewhere else for them? I think the trash aspect is one of the harder points of that mm-hmm. because you can't, you almost can't let them stay where they are. Cause the trash, I mean, the pictures from the trash cleanup were atrocious. Were, uh, yeah. 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 I mean, it, insane. The amount of trash that was back there. So what do you do? Do you almost, you let them stay there because you can't move them somewhere or do you just bite the bullet and you go and clean it out? Well, no, then because then it becomes the a public health risk. And so I recognize that too. And yeah, that's where it's, it gets difficult because you want people to have the resources to better themselves. But if you're living in squalor, that's that's not good for you. It's not good for anyone in the surrounding area. And so, like, what's what's the education that we can provide there? We have a dumpster here. The garbage goes in the dumpster. You know, and, and, and I know people will say, like, well, why are we putting that there? That's just creating an eyesore. I'm like, well, it's keeping the area clean. So which is it? Do we want people, you know, not living here? Do we just want them to disperse, put up a camp somewhere else that we're also going to be dispersing later? Do we want to create something more permanent? And, and, and I would think that we would want to create something more permanent so they can get acclimated, so they can get better access, faster access, or at least more reasonable access to the resources that they need. And in the meantime, if we have a dumpster there, if we have sanitation service there, it should help again, ameliorate that whole situation of squalor. Do you think that that transitional phase, what would that look like for you? Would that be a designated area where they could go camp? It would. I'm just not sure where that is yet. Yeah. Um, I haven't put much thought into that. But again, as we're looking to where we would be building housing, permanent housing, uh, the surplus lots, maybe there's one of those that we create for, (laughs) I guess, temporary, permanent you know, encampment, unless we could find something else. But for a lot of folks, I think it's just, I don't want to see that. I don't want to be exposed to that, but it's not something we can just continue to hide. 
these are people that are, yes, in a lot of ways choosing to live this way because they don't have the resources or they don't want to. And I think a lot of it is the, is the former there is that they don't know of the resources and it's getting them connected to it in that reasonable amount of time. It's, it's a hard topic mm-hmm. because you have the people that really are just down and out and they don't want to be living on the streets and they want a better life for themselves. They're, they're trying to figure out how to get their feet back under them. And then you do have the people that just don't want to live in society mm-hmm. that just don't fit the mold, have no desire to conform to it and just want to want to live on the streets. But, right. But even those folks need some of the resources that are available. <laughs> I mean, unless they're I mean, unless they're really far out into the green belt doing all their hunting, doing all that sort of stuff. Yeah, there's still elements of of our society that they have to acclimate to. But if it's if it's home ownership, renting those type of things, and they're just like, that's not for me. You know, I'm happy with my camp, my tent, you know, my uh, my weather gear. It's like, all right, we have this spot for you, right over here. And if you could help, you know, if you could help talk with the folks that you know, the relationships that you've developed, for the people that you feel, you know, don't uh, don't have don't have their shit together. That's what we're here to help with. Or these are the resources that are available for them through the county, through the city, through the state. There is the argument, mm-hmm. and do you put any weight in this argument, in that if you are providing the resources, especially to the ones that just don't want to conform, are you enabling at that point? Or is that just a bullet that you have to bite in order to not have these mounds of trash and these needles everywhere and the squalor that they would live in otherwise? Uh, I I don't think we're enabling. It's 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 human behavior. Yeah, there are going to be... A, subset of people that are just like well i've learned how to take advantage of the system i'm going to do that um you're you're talking with someone who's grown up on food stamps a section eight family and you know my parents did what they could to try and bring ourselves up to the middle class and it was just it was not in the dice i i, I mean uh, my family's still on section eight and it's not for any lack of, of want. It's just, you know, it's impossible in some scenarios, it feels. Uh, so picking, picking yourself up by your bootstrap. Yeah, I, I think what was it that was said earlier this week by one of the justices? Everybody's got bootstraps, but not everybody can reach them. And, and I think that might be the case for a larger sect of people than others saying that, well, there's a program here. I'm going to take advantage of it. I'm a big fan of that pull yourself up by the bootstraps mentality, mm-hmm. but I don't, I don't know if I subscribe to how it has been used historically. Mm-hmm. I'm a big believer that at the end of the day, you are the one that can pull yourself out of it. You know, like nobody's coming to save you at the end of the day, you have to participate in your own salvation. And so when I think of that quote, that's what I think of. Not that you should be looked down on for using these resources or you shouldn't try to take advantage of them but you have to actively participate. You have to want to change your circumstances. You have to want, and I can, I can 100% agree with that. You can have the want and the desire, but the resources might not be there for you. As hard as you want it and try it, like, yeah, you've got to build relationships. You've got to make some stuff happen. But at the end of the day, it's not going to be you by yourself. Like I could t- for, for me, my success didn't come from just because I wanted it to. Like, it, yeah, there's that element of me. There's that impetus to say, like, you got to do this, Mario. Uh, 
the, the relationships that I've had with, with my partner, with, you know, my, my friends, neighbors, community, that's what really helped has built, has really helped establish and build me up having those relationships. That's how I look at it. It, it might be different, you know, from, from your perspective, because you're like, wow, Mario really did, you know, build himself up. It's like, yeah, but I didn't do it by myself. It would be impossible for me to do it by myself. And, and, and that's the, the, that's the lens that I look, look at it through is that, you know, everything that, well, not everything, but a lot of, a lot of what we need to succeed has to be community driven. The desire has to come from within the success is going to come from out. Well, what do you do if you don't have that community or that family or those friends to lean on? You're screwed. Which is why we have certain programs in place and we've got to do better to communicate them. Because then that could help you establish that, like, oh, I didn't know that there was free housing. I didn't know I could take a shower. Like, I, I feel cleaner. I feel better. But still feeling a little defeated here. Like, what do I do? Well, we've got these mental health resources to help you build back up your person and your character. And we've got, uh, we've got these programs through the city to help you find a job. Again, you're not doing it by yourself. But you still have to have that drive. I think there's a community disconnect. Mm -hmm between the homeless and those who are not. I think a lot of people believe they did something to get there and that they're ultimately a fault. Like, oh, well, you shouldn't have done drugs. Shouldn't have got addicted. Oh, well, you should have made your mortgage payments. Right. You know, there's not, it's almost like they put this victim mentality onto them that, you know, you're there because you screwed yourself. And so now you're dealing with the consequences of that. Right. You're there can... because your adjustable rate mortgage in 2008, you didn't plan for that. And it shot up to 16% and you couldn't make your payment. That's your fault because you didn't understand the paperwork you were signing for the American dream on the home that you wanted. And I, I, I think that's maybe where we get a little short-sighted is putting the blame on them sometimes because it's not always the fault of, again, the individual. Some of these come from the external portion of our society. And nobody thinks it could happen to them. Well, a lot of people thought that until 2008. That's true. <laughs> and we are in a weird time frame where a lot of people might be waking up to that realization. As, as we look at the inflation that we haven't seen like this in, what, 30, 40 years? So it's like, yeah, what's it going to look like here economically over the next four? Do you anticipate a significant... Oh, psychology is my background, not economics. <laughs> I, like to re I like to read a lot about history and look at the comparables, but... Um, I, I wouldn't even know where to look for this one. I wish I would have been older during 2008 to try to observe it. Cause I've heard that there are a lot of parallels between what happened and what's happening now that I was, I was just a younger kid back then. So I didn't really pay attention to any of that. <laughs> I, let's see, how old was I? 2008. So I would have been about 20, 24. Yeah. I think I was 10. Oh. I would have been 10, 11. <laughs> Yeah, so I wasn't really paying attention to the the world stage or the national stage of what was happening. Oh yeah, no, I was busy trying to uh, get a job during a recession, <laughs> and and also continue to uh, go to community college. So, so why are you running? What what made you want to do this? Do you feel like you can have a significant impact on the people of Ward Three, or is this just kind of been a dream of yours? What's what's the psyche behind this? Man, I. Can't say it's a dream. I don't think there's been a point in my life where I was just like, I'm going to be a city council member one day. Like, I don't think. Really? Because the pay is great. <laughs> I think everybody wants to go into it. I, I feel like if the pay were a little more, I feel like if the pay for city council in Eureka were just a little more like, uh, like you could pay your rent on it, 
we'd end up with a lot more people running for office than we currently have. Um, but e e even that aside, it's, it's the dedication to public service that I enjoy. It gives me, uh, gives me a thrill to be able to just acclimate and integrate into the community. I like being able to give back in a substantial way. Um, I think I have, Myself, I have ideas that mesh well with our current leadership. I have a good relationship with a number of the city council members. And from my perspective, they've been doing a good job over the last four years. And, and again, I've lived here five. So I know there's a population of people that are here like, well, do you really understand the needs of our community? Well, there's a class of people in the school district who thought I'd be a good choice after living here a year to displace a then incumbent at the time. And so with this opening, it wasn't uh, on, on city council for Ward 3. And the reason I say opening is because Natalie, uh, Natalie Arroyo is moving on to her supervisor role here towards the end of the year. It wasn't one of those things where I rushed in going, all right, now's my chance. It was just like, well, who do we have that's considering running? Okay, we have a few people who are considering it. Great. I'm going to go back to doing what I need to on the school board. I'm going to stick to the things I'm doing right now and all these other community organizations come July, end of June. Oh, what do you mean? We don't have any interest right now. Okay. Let me think about this. Let me get over this case of COVID I have and get back to you and I'll think about it and thought about it for another week or two and then got my paperwork, turned it in probably about a week before it was due. It's, it's not something I took lightly. It's just like, is this something I feel I'm capable of? Cause I don't want to do a disservice to anybody. But there's already, again, a group of people who thought I would serve well as a school board member. So let's let's give this a shot. Where do you think the biggest challenges facing that ward are right now? That particular ward, again, like you've said, you know, as we've established in this in this time, it's a small town. So I feel like there are a lot of overlapping, uh, a lot of overlapping issues, uh, housing, homelessness. I mean, Ward Three for what it is, you know, we're far and away from the coastline, so we don't have to worry about the encroaching impacts of climate change, but it's still going to affect our community. And, and even when we look at, uh, at Carson Park, when we look at the development in our area, we've already got a mixed-use residential business district, which is great and fantastic. That's been there for some time, Henderson Center. Uh, look at Carson Park. That's being redeveloped. Uh, we're going to see some upgrades and some updates to that, which are fantastic. But the overall prevailing issues are still the same citywide issues where it comes to housing and uh, the homeless population. And what, what do you make of that, the proposal to use some of those commercial buildings as mixed use and put some of the homeless in there for housing? Well, I, we were asked a similar question a few weeks ago, and I'm open to the idea. It sounds like a great idea. Yeah, we have to change our zoning. We have to change some of our plan use for that. But at the same time, it's not like, you know, as the business owner you know, or the person who owns the vacant lot or shop, I'm just going to say, well, that's the city's now. Yeah, not just eminent domain. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. That's not the route I want to go unless it's really like the last uh, piece of arsenal that we have because we've tried. Mm -mm. We want to negotiate. We want to do everything we can so we can do right by the business owner and the property owner. We want to do right by the neighborhood. But we've got to get past this mentality of not in my backyard because, well, then we're going to run out of places to do this. And so, you know, how is it going to look? How is it going to fit into the aesthetic? You know, we've got to get people acclimated and we've got to communicate. Aesthetic. 
does that come up a lot in terms of pushback aesthetic like oh the not in my backyard thing like i don't want to see that well right there yeah well, take into account uh some of the arguments against the it, not the totality of the arguments but you know portion of the arguments while we were putting or while we were having the discussion about the uh, the wind farm up on the up on the mountains the hills there some of the folks were saying that's going to ruin my view shed it's like I don't a think I've ever shed. I, I've never heard those two words used like that. Neither had I. <laughs> but you have a piece of property and you could see over those hills and you don't like the way that that wind farm is going to obstruct your view. That's it's a neat argument. Probably not the most impactful right now, but it's a portion of the argument. Okay. <laughs> what do you, when I brought that up, I was thinking about those lot cops, like mm-hmm. the one they threw in front of the gazebo. What is your stance on those? Oh, those were horrific, and I think they should have gone through an open process. It was um, pretty crazy that they just put it up. Like, yeah, this is just going to go right in front of the gazebo. Yeah. And and I forget if that was a city, man- or city administrator decision or... I think, to be fair to the council, I don't think they knew it was happening. I think it was an admin that decided to put it there. Well, it was, and I forget if it was the Lost Coast or the Time Standard, but when they were writing up, that's what came across. Uh, city administrators didn't feel that this was something that needed to be done because they didn't need the permission. And it's like, but it's the transparency and it's the communication. I, I mean, even the shop owners that have been clamoring, like, oh, you know, we need more of a police presence down here. We're having issues. It's like, but you didn't talk to them about putting this up, did you? Because nobody seems to like it. Nobody seems to want it. <laughs> got to do better by that. We've got to communicate this better. Do you think that that, the theory of that is a good solution to the needs of the area is implementing these lock cops, which for people that don't know, it's just a tower with cameras. Right. And the theory of it, as you're observed, you're less likely to engage in any sort of nefarious behavior. (laughs) Um, I can't say that I agree with the theory. It's, I, I mean, if people are going to, to rob or use or do anything like that, it's going to be much more clandestine than, Here's this large uh, looming camera that's going to abate the situation. I, I don't. I, I disagree with the theory. Now, if there's any science behind it, I'll gladly read those reports. But just the theory alone, I have to disagree with. Yeah, I'm not a big fan. The idea behind it freaks me. The idea of the mass surveillance state, I get that people throw that out there and it starts getting, you get a little woo-woo with it. <laughs> um but it kind of freaks me out. And the idea that they could attach, you know, uh, license plate readers to it or facial recognition software, which I believe in the city council discussions, there was a discussion that the cameras don't have it currently, but not that they wouldn't in the future. Mm-hmm. That freaks me out. Well, I mean, what's to keep a private shop owner from putting something and facing it outward? Yeah, but they wouldn't have the ability to use something like a governmental resource that like a facial recognition software or a license plate reader Mm -hmm. the shop owner is just going to have his camera and yeah you might not like that but if it's in your shop i think it's a little different when it comes to a government entity like the city council and then even if you agree with it with this city council what if the next one says you know what we're gonna we feel like there are a lot of cars being stolen down there we're gonna do the license plate reader where does it where does it end or where do you draw the line on big brother are you a subscriber to that mentality or what is your stance there? I would want to read more on the, the effects on the theory, on the science of does this dissuade people 
you know, what is the impact of license plate readers? What does this actually do other than collect data? I, I, I honestly don't know. So at the moment, no, I'm not a big supporter of it because what does it do? Collects data. Yeah. Does it criminalize me? Like, again, that's all it does is collect data. I, I, I don't understand like it's, it's intent. Is it to dissuade people from driving? Is it just dissuade people from stealing a vehicle? Cause it's not going to happen. <laughs> and I think in certain uses, like, Winco, I believe, has mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. That's great. Let Winco use that. But to put one in front of the gazebo or in downtown, these places where people are actively walking or there's arts alive, it just feels a little dicey. Seems like it could be a slippery slope in the future. Well, again, and that's one of those things where it should have been an open process. The community should have had a say. Yeah. And, and, and it wasn't until, I think it was... Leslie Castellano, it may have been Natalie Arroyo that brought it up and were able to bring it to the council where there's a discussion. But it's there. And it's just like, how much of an impact did, did that have? Because it's there. It's, it's out of sight. <laughs> but I believe it's still there. I think they just moved it. <laughs> and these are on permanent foundations, which is the crazy part, from my understanding. Oh, are they? I believe so. The Winco one is that mobile unit, but I believe, I know initially the one they installed in front of the gazebo was a permanent structure. And I think the one they moved it to is permanent as well. Mm. Uh, so were they already permanent? No, they installed it to oh, okay. be a permanent one. Okay. That's why them taking it down was such a big deal. They were like, we don't want to, this is supposed to be a permanent structure now. Can Probably. you Google that? Cause I might be, maybe I'm talking out of my house. I know for sure the initial one was permanent. Okay. A, a, um, a permanent structure just, that that we didn't include anybody on in the decision making process yeah, except ourselves. I think I don't know if it was the city planner. I don't want to speak out of turn, but it was one individual that said, "Yeah, we're going to put it right here." Yeah, and talk and, about the process of government. Where does that come into play? <laughs> and and it may have been, yeah again because I would think if it was one of the planners, even one of the administrators, there wasn't anything. Uh, malicious about it it was just like oh we're we're low on on law enforcement we don't have enough bodies well then should be okay to install this and that'll dissuade people hold on <laughs> you're installing something that's supposed to be permanent and something it, it, yeah and is gonna surveil the public what do you have here for cindy Lot cops to be built around town. Oh, you're right. That is yeah. So the initial one was a permanent structure. Scroll down and see if we can see. Um, da, 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 building in Carter House. Those are yeah. They've put them on some of the trails. As well, see if you can find where it talks about the second one. Well, and to be fair, the city. I don't know if it's the city planner. I don't want to give slack to anyone an individual without <laughs> knowing for sure. But well, their decisions lately have not been that great there was the what was it w and dolbeer oh man <laughs> what is your stance on that so and and it, it's going to come down to communication again uh when they had or at least when they had hired the entity to conduct this study and do its 100 page plus report it's been alleged that the city reached out to the school district School district said, we don't want you to do this while students are in classes. 
but I guess there had been a miscommunication because when this particular item was brought to our school board, it was corrected as saying the district didn't want this to occur during the first two weeks or first week of school because it would have been too chaotic. <clears throat> and so the fact that we'd only been consulted in that capacity, we're going to do a study. When do you want us to do it? And then nothing was discussed with us until the project came before the city. And I can understand, okay, this is the city, but it's going to have an impact on one of our school sites right over there by the zoo, Washington. And with how that school was built and the parking lot, the drop-off zone for the bus, you're going to have things running in the wrong direction. We're going to be dropping kids off across the street. It's a safety issue. It's going to be going in a one-way direction. We know that there's already anecdotal evidence in this report saying that we have staff that deserve people driving through this area 30 plus miles an hour. So why didn't you come to us sooner? Why didn't you communicate with this, uh, with us on this better? So that was the prevailing issue for me, uh, for the entirety of the board. It was a safety issue for me. It was just like, why wasn't this study conducted under, uh, under a normal school day over the course of a week? Yeah, they did it when school wasn't in session. Right. Which, how do you get an accurate reading you don't. on track? Exactly. <laughs> and then for them to just decide, yeah, we're going we're gonna to do this based on the information we have. We feel, we feel this is a solid idea. Acknowledging, oh, it's going to increase traffic, going to increase time to get wherever you're going through that area. It's not going to be efficient, but at least we will have a bike lane. Yeah. And when it came to and when it came to us, one of the issues that I brought up too is that normally you hear things from from both sides. Uh, you know, whether people want to support something, uh, oppose something, usually you're going to hear that. Uh, even the was it the survey conducted by the city? Over eighty percent said, "Don't change this." You know, I can't speak to the veracity of that survey because I don't know how it was conducted, if they checked IPs or anything like that. But at the same time, even it seemed during the city council sessions, it was really only less than a handful of folks who were like, I think this is a good idea. Like, <laughs> maybe that's indicative of something. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know anybody that was pro it. I, I honestly can't think of anyone. And even then, I try to leer away from that because it's, you know, it's anecdotal. And so you, you want to have something a bit more substantial to it. But the fact that I can't think of in any of the articles, and any of the going ons, uh, e even in our own board meeting, there wasn't anybody that said, well, hold on a moment. This might be a good idea. Not one. <laughs> I think that says something. Yeah. Maybe it's, not the best idea. And, and, and so it, it, it might come back at some date in the future because legislation's never truly dead. Well, that's the crazy part is they yeah. said they reserved the right to bring it back to the floor. Uh, you have to say that so that way... But just acknowledge, if you have a bad idea, I will not fault you for it. But if you have a bad idea and you dig in your heels and you say, no, this is a great idea, after knowing it's a bad idea, we've got a problem. Well, well what's great is in that particular study for that, uh, for just the change lane use around there, there are elements in that study that say that you have to have the trust of community. You have to communicate this correctly, and it has to be something that they want. And so it sounds like all, all of that was just failed on by the city and so could have done better to communicate there's still an issue of trust that has to be developed and as much as they tried to explain like this is how it's going to improve traffic flow none of that really seemed to land well i don't think that was it was 
intended to improve traffic at all. Mm -hmm. I don't think that was the point of it. They acknowledged that it was going to make it worse. They just, for whatever reason, they felt a bike lane was needed around there. Well, which slowed things down around the school. <laughs> so I'm a bit in yeah, favor of that. Yeah. Which you could, I mean, the speed bumps, mm -hmm. that was their intended purpose, right? Was to slow things down around the school. But a bike lane just seemed, I, I mean, I like to think I'm around that area a lot. I drive yeah. through there all the time. I never see anybody riding bikes. You see a lot of people walking. Well, yeah, don't get me wrong. I would love to see a bike lane there. I have a bad knee and I still love to ride my bike. Uh, but if it's if it's going to be at the detriment of the process and explaining how it's going to work for the community, then you're not coming from the right place. I, I, I do believe that if there were a dedicated bike lane, we would see more cyclists around there. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, again, that goes into the element of like, we need to reduce our carbon emissions. You know, that alone going to help us plan around our city better uh I, are we ever going to be a bikeable city like amsterdam probably not we're much too small for that like san francisco i hope not uh, <laughs> but it, it's it's one of those things that we are going to have to get away from the idea that everything is built for a made and around cars i'm not saying that uh, nobody should be owning one but we do have to figure out a way to mitigate emissions and so, you know, even that aside, I just like the idea of the bike lane for my own selfish purposes, but I'm not going to say, let's put a bike lane there, even after this study that says that we need to do all these things. I'm not going to do something, even if I might enjoy it, that's going to be at the detriment of our city. Which you would hope all, all every official would, would take that stance. Well, yeah, and, 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 and I think that's maybe where a lot of the council was coming from, is that like, well, we've done a study, oh wait, but there are these faults in it. Okay, you know what? Probably not the best one. And they did they did the right thing in the end and said, you know what, we're just not gonna do it. But we reserve the right to change our mind and look at this again. Like you just have to do that. Do you think that the city needs to start taking those steps to what would you say, implement a greener future? That seems to be a catchphrase. Yeah, catchphrase, <laughs> but a pillar of your campaign I've noticed is the idea of of green, especially mm -hmm. with climate change. Is that just a passion of yours or do you think the city needs to start taking those steps i i honestly think every municipality that has it in their control needs to i mean look we've got the coastline there we're already aware of the impacts that it's going to have rising sea levels going to have on the corridor of 101 going towards arcada so yeah we need to build up in a way as best as we can and by that i'm not talking about like having the transamerica building or anything like that and you know the eureka landscape but four or five stories shouldn't be unheard of i mean we're already building what a four or five story building that's supposed to have its rooftop bar in the old town area the largest structure in our city is the courthouse and that's how many stories five five yeah so so what's wrong with that i, I don't necessarily see anything wrong with it as long as it's built around the elements of uh ways to house the unhoused and make it affordable for people in our community. Do you think that's part of the solution is building up? Mm -hmm. I do. What do you make of the, the housing situation there with HSU or uh, Cal, Cal Poly Humble? I'm just going to keep saying HSU. I'm, I'm digging my heels. I'm going to become that guy. I'm just going to dig it, my it, heels. It, in. Yeah, it's all right. I like to say Humboldt Poly. So. Yeah, that's a good combo. <laughs> yeah, right. Do you, cause there's been a lot of pushback with that. Right. And I believe it's around the, fact that they're building I, I don't know if it's five stories or eight stories andy and i were trying to figure that out today yeah well i mean arcada is a unique place you know compared to uh, eureka but you also have to take it from the perspective of like what is it that we need 
what is it that we're comfortable with and because getting people to acclimate to change is already difficult enough so how much change can we offer that's reasonable four or five stories people seem comfortable with that does that mean in the future we're not going to have eight or ten story buildings i'm not going to be on city council at the time but is the culture going to change to that point where it's like you know what we need denser housing and it needs to go up if if the community's in favor of that and there's plant viable plans for it why not so with arcada that's a bit difficult just because i'm aware of the situation but i'm not too aware of the politics going on and i know that there have been some issues about building closer to the bay and i'm thinking like my god no <laughs> you need to build further away from the bay especially as we're all aware sea levels rising is there any have, have there been any studies done or is there any evidence showing what that would look like for old town off the, to tides? off the top of rising my head yeah I, I, I don't know but you know that it, it will impact the corridor out there on 101? Yeah. What does that look like? Um, that's just coming from the various reports that we see or articles from Lost Coast, Time Standard. And a lot of that would be planned and constructed by Caltrans. So that's kind of as best as I'm informed at the moment. I haven't gone into a lot of the traffic corridor studies. No, but does that <laughs> look... Are we talking about it within the next 25 years that corridor would be partially underwater or what, what do you know the extent of what that looks like i think it would probably be within the next 25 or 30 that it would be underwater well no not underwater but it would get to the point where it would become increasingly unsafe for traffic to fl flow through there especially depending on uh the the winter and uh any any sort of king's tides that we would get that's a crazy thought yeah. do you think we should be build we shouldn't be building in Old Town, we should be focusing our efforts farther away from the bay, or do you think it's pretty safe there? What does I that look like for you? I can't speak too much to that because I'd have—I mean, we would have to do a study on that. There's just no way around it. I'm not an expert on on that particular change there, and I'm going to stick to the fact that the one thing that I think we universally understand is that climate the, change is coming it's coming it's occurred you know the sea level is rising to what point uh, we hear about how it'll affect uh king salmon and you know the outlying unincorporated areas of eureka but for old town like no i don't see many hands gallery getting washed away in the next 10 years maybe 25 i don't know <laughs> i get, gotta look at the science on that but uh it's it's again it's it's planning for it and so we can look and see what other coastal communities have done to to mitigate the effects yeah don't look at florida right <laughs> they just it's kind of weird florida is a unique case in that they just keep rebuilding i've never really understood that you know there's a lot of hurricanes there it gets decimated and was like well pick up a hammer we're we're building everything back <laughs> that's kind of a a weird thing that humans do we just pick a spot and this is now our spot we're not going to move it infrastructure gets wiped out build it back up uh, yeah <laughs> we, we might want to be more cautious as uh as as it comes to that you know i'm not always be prepared you know plan for natural disasters but maybe if anything happened it's like well you know what maybe we don't rebuild right there maybe we scooted a little farther off the coast yeah or do i, I mean obviously i'm not a structural engineer or anything <laughs> but you would think there would be ways that we would have the technology to kind of make things a little stronger or prepare in a different way where it 
doesn't just decimate entire communities every time it happens. Well, you don't like the years. idea of having gondola rides through Old Town? I mean, we already got a lovely look downtown that everybody from, you know, locally loves and even from out of county loves. Imagine if you could ride a gondola through that. Of course, I'm being sarcastic, but. <laughs> yeah. We, uh, we were talking about those lot cops. Mm-hmm. And one of the big things that is tied to that is the police presence, right? It seems like Humboldt County as a whole is having staffing issues. The sheriff's office, EP, I'm not quite sure about EPD, but I know the sheriff's office is struggling. The jail's struggling. Yeah. Well, I think it's been explained to me that EPD is probably short about 12 to 15 officers. So that's crazy. Yeah. Do you think we need to bolster that? Do you think we need to start recruiting more talent from wherever we can get it and bring in a stronger police force? What is your stance on that? If we're looking at law enforcement and trying to increase, uh, not the capacity, but wanting to fill current openings, I always think it's best to come from within because they're the ones that are going to understand the community. And even that, I understand that earlier this week, or last week anyway, that the city council approved a reorganization, a restructuring of some of the positions. So that way they're more internal and able to better communicate with uh, <clears throat> just uh, your your street cops. Uh, and, and, and even from there, you know, it's... I think best to reallocate some of those funds to the mental health services that are needed. Now, now one of the things that I know I've, I've been accused of is uh, defund the police. And it's like, people hear reallocation and it's, you go to defund. Are you talking about, do you want to abolish the police Mario? Is that where we're going? No, (laughs) that's the track people that they go down that though. Right. For defund. No, people hear reallocation and they instantly think, defund and then it goes to oh you want to abolish the police well yeah in a perfect world we wouldn't need law enforcement right but yeah we still need to have some sort of citizen oversight of of ourselves and our neighbors and so who are we going to do that i don't want to do that on the daily so what do we do well we get someone else to do it oh, okay well guess what you're a law enforcement officer now so there we go that's that's handled uh but 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 you're right because people do seem to think that yeah it's defund it's like oh my god you want to abolish the police um you've been accused of that yes <laughs> Uh, and, and so my my perspective is you've heard the words defund. The Democratic Party at the state level has has endorsed the the movement of defund the police and not to abolish the police because the idea, the rhetoric is, you know, we've been screaming for for these services, for this help for decades, you know, for reallocation, for mental health programs, for anything. But it didn't start getting noticed until let's defund the police. Whoa, now back up. It's like, oh, cool. I've got your attention. Great. Thank you. You know, I've been screaming for help here for a while now, but can we have a conversation about this? And the answer is either going to be yes, which thankfully I've had, or it's going to be no, which, which I haven't uh, encountered yet because people are at least willing to have a conversation after, after I've been asked, do you defund the police or, you know, do you support defund? Yes or no? The answer is yes. Can we have a conversation now? It kind of seems contradictory in a time where we are short-staffed with police to talk about defunding the police though doesn't it or how what is that so when you say you want to defund the police what does that mean for you just a reallocation of some of the police resources a pulling of some of the funding and directed it towards mental health services what does that look like for you well they have the community service engagement team which I believe has been doing some some great work with the homeless population to get them connected. Again, that's one of those resources to help people get where they need to go, get what they uh, need to better themselves. 
And so could we use the funding for more of those type of positions? Because my, my understanding is there's only one social worker so far. And so can that one social worker <laughs> do all the work for that team? Has that been looked at in that capacity? Do we need an additional social worker? Do we need to look at other positions that might not necessarily be uh, a law enforcement officer? And so I'm not saying, I'm not saying like, oh, we never fill those positions, but can they be uh, restructured in a way that we're still doing right by the community, but we're also doing right by the people that need these services and these calls? I mean, look, I just had someone uh, wander onto my property the other night screaming, you know, they didn't break anything, but it's like, oh, you are not in a good space. And the instinct from my partner was like, well, we've got to call 911. It's like, no, no, let's call non-emergency. This isn't an emergent situation. It's it's urgent. This person needs help. And you know, it was still law enforcement that showed up, but in in what capacity, I'm not I'm not certain because I didn't like like, oh, I need to be part of this. It's like, nope, that's not my role in this situation. So I'm assuming that that person got help or at least was taken to a place where they could get it. I've heard the sentiment a lot that people would like other response units. So if somebody is having a mental health crisis, it is not police that respond. Mm -hmm. It's maybe a social worker. Maybe it's some someone that's well-versed in mental health crises that would respond. But what I don't understand is would that person feel comfortable doing that? Well, and that's what we have to take into account. So I'm not allocating for sending anyone into an unsafe situation. I've been asked that question before, too. So and, and a domestic violence situation, especially in, in a house, can really take a turn depending on you know, what's inside, you know, how uh, heightened and anxious and angry people are in that situation, it could take a violent turn. I'm not saying that, you know, I hope for that situation, but you need someone who is there who can not only de-escalate it, you know, from a mental health perspective, but who might have to make that, that arrest or that intervention if it came to it. Because that person <laughs> with their mental health background isn't going to be qualified to do that. What do you make of the counter-argument that we should provide the police more funding and give them more training so that they are more capable to handle the details of the job. At, at that point, we're just throwing, you know, we're just throwing more responsibility at them the same way we do with teachers. You can't be a counselor and an educator and the lunch person. You can't be an officer, the mental health person, the person who asked it's, you can't, just keep throwing money at it and saying, here, we're paying you to do all of this. You reach that upper limit of just, this is what I know, and this is what I've trained for. I can't be prepared for everything. And so that's why I do see this kind of bifurcation in, in duties. Like, yes, you have your role as a law enforcement officer. You're making sure that people are abiding by the law. You're making sure that people are safe. But you also have this mental health professional here who's going to help de-escalate that situation who's going to get them pointed in the direction of the programs that can help or assess what's going on. Do you buy into the idea that in reallocating some of their funds or in cutting some of their funds that it will hamper their ability to do the job that they're doing currently or dissuade people from good people from wanting to take those positions because there's no money in it anymore. Well, if we if if we cut the funding, that means we're cutting the funding for the programs like the CSET team, you know, the community service engagement team. Uh, so so no, I can't say like yes, let's just slash the budget. It's like no, how do we reallocate? But where does that money come from? The reallocation money. Well, it would be from within. 
right? So you'd be saying, you know, this, because I believe that social worker is part of the police department. So instead of backfilling one of those, uh, from my perspective, instead of backfilling one of those empty positions, it's like, well, we have this position of a mental health worker. So we can have one of those police positions. Yes, potentially. But then doesn't that decrease police presence? It would. But is that what we need in some responses? Yeah. In some responses. Mm-hmm. Like how many officers do we need in that domestic uh, uh, domestic dispute situation? How many officers do we need if someone's having that mental health breakdown in front of a business downtown in Old Town or in Henderson Center or on my property or anyone's property for that matter? Yes, you still want someone there who could administer or, you know, again, provide that safety. But if it's going to... Uh, if, if it's only that mental health response that's needed, then you still have the officer there and you have that social worker there. In theory. Yeah. Right. But what if I think that perspective looks at the situation as if these are isolated incidents? What if you have five situations going off at one point and one situation is like what we saw over um, over on Boone where there was an active shooter? And the police, there was a police chase, right? You would have to allocate a lot more officers to that one situation. And then what are you left with? If you decrease the positions, what are you left with to service the rest of the community? Well, how have we, how have we responded to that even with our, even with our levels currently? Well, and, if, and, and so I'd be looking to that. How have we responded to that? And do we have any folks that are, you know, reserve officers themselves? So we'd have to pull from there, at least for those type of emergent situations. And but from, and, sorry, I didn't mean no, to No, no, you're good. <laughs> yeah. No, continue. <laughs> I was going to say, and even from my understanding, when there are those type of events, you know, there are, oh God, what are they? I forget what they're called, but there are typically agreements between the law enforcement departments. Hey, if there's something going on, we need your response to us to help with this. And I believe that even occurs with the sheriff too in this area. I would buy that. Yeah. My, my, point of pressing on that is just i'm curious in that we are in a chaotic time Mm -hmm. nationally and the idea of decreasing police presence presidents police presence it seems to get a lot of pushback because people are worried well if there's no cops around who's going to protect nobody's saying when nobody's saying uh no cops and 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 i'm trying to do my best to say you know not less cops because again, and, and and yeah, I did say you know let's let's fill this position with a mental health specialist. But again, it's still in the same department, so at least that way they can better communicate and coordinate with each other. Because that's the one thing people do ask: Where are we going to get money for this? Where are we going to get money for that? And it's like, well, we have to work with the state on that. We have to work with the county on that. Like the city doesn't just manifest money as it wishes, unless we increase taxes. And I'm not saying that right now. Uh, <laughs> but but we have to be creative with what we have. So if we find out, hey, you know, we need 15 officers, but 12 has been working. Okay. Can we experiment with three mental health workers then? Three social workers? Can we get by with two? Because we're kind of running a test with one. Is that sufficient? And so I'm not saying like this is all going to change overnight. I'm not advocating for that. But we have to run these studies to see uh, or these uh yeah, we have to study to see how this is working. And is it? I think it gets dangerous when you think about it in terms of 
are we getting by? Because you might be able to get by. Maybe you have 15 positions and you've been getting by with 12. Mm. But doesn't that then put those officers in stressful positions? Maybe they're working double shifts. Maybe there's more pressure on them to perform. And then you get into dangerous well, situations where they're well, yeah. in the heat of the moment and something goes awry because... Well, yeah, and I guess I should have elaborated on that too. When I say getting by, is it that uh, is it that we're able to function properly and not like you pointed out, uh, you understaffed? Know, are, yeah, yeah. Are are we understaffed but managing? No, I don't want to be there either. Because again, I'm coming from the human perspective, and even even being on the side of teachers, it's just like I don't want you to take on more duties than you're comfortable with. I don't want you to have to work past your contracted time. Like, yeah, there are going to be times where that's needed. But I don't want that need to be every week. I don't want that to be every pay period for you. So it's just like what works best for us and can get us the resources that we need in the community for the section of folks that don't need to be approached by a law enforcement officer. Have you gotten a lot of pushback for that stance? No. Again, having talked with people about how it might work, how it should work, because I'm not saying that like, all right, you know, we're going to be. I'm not saying abolish the police. And so once we talk about defund and we talk about what that means in terms of reallocation, there are people who might be a little uncomfortable because, again, it's that change. This is the structure that we're used to seeing. But we're also seeing, and I think like you and I talked about earlier, this need for more of a focus on mental health and well-being. So how do we get that with what we have? How can we restructure so that way it's, it's healthier and functioning properly? It's a touchy subject. It does feel like that's all we've hit on today is touchy subjects, <laughs> you know? Well, I mean, that's, that's, you, you have to have these conversations and not everyone's going to be willing to agree with, or not everyone is going to agree with your perspective. And, and even on the school board, you know, there were tough decisions where it, we stopped in person, uh, in person education for, for how many months there. And so everything was done virtually. And there were parents who were just like, why did you make this decision? You know, X months down the road. They understood why we did it at the start, but we didn't have any data. We didn't have anything except what was coming in like right away. Public health was being kind of, uh, was kind of tiptoeing like, oh, it's your decision. You're your own governmental agency. And it's like, but can you give me some perspective on your thoughts? I'm trying to approach this from a scientific perspective since this is a virus here. Uh, well, it's up to each community. Oh, well, thanks for passing the buck on that one. <laughs> I'm not trying to blame you. I'm just trying to get some input here. And, and so what I found out is that parents may have disagreed with a decision of the board, with uh, my decision as an individual, but as long as I had that conversation with them explaining why the decision was made, how it was made from my perspective, they still disagreed with me, but they could understand where I was coming from. And so even on any of these touchy subjects, particularly law enforcement, as long as people understand I'm not saying, you know, F the police, we're going to abolish it, you know, let it rain anarchy over here. It's, it's more just like, what can we do? What's right by our community and what's right by those that need the services and the help to grow and prosper. I think we need a hybrid approach. Mm -hmm. I think part of me believes that we need to provide more funding to the police. I believe that they need better training. I think. And this is from a limited, you know, outside perspective. Mm -hmm. I think if we provided more training, got, like, vetted the people that were going into these positions, really gave them the tools that they needed to succeed, maybe we wouldn't have these situations 
like what was that one uh, was it a couple weeks ago where the cop shot that kid in the mcdonald's parking lot and i shouldn't have brought that up because i'm not quite well versed enough in that but you have these situations where these cops are in high stress moments and if they don't have sufficient training if they don't have the tools necessary to competently do their job shit can hit the fan in a bad way very quickly well yeah we can certainly as a city advocate for more training at the state level that's not a program that we yeah, control you guys aren't implementing yeah, that and so that means having a relationship with cr who oversees the program but can't make any changes to it that come from the state level and so i i agree that they can certainly receive more training and uh what is it not necessarily exposure but a better understanding of mental health it is not their job to administer that though I mean, like you said, they're making, you know, a snap decision in a parking lot that might be their own safety or in the safety of another. But if it's a mental health situation, like we're asking them to take that on too, in addition to all of those other duties and stresses. I They've got we, a lot on their plate. So do teachers. <laughs> and we can't just keep piling more on. It's like we can get you prepared. But at the end of the day, it's your decision. But here we have someone here who specializes in this and you take them with you. Or they go on these particular calls. I would be interested to see how an additional resource like that, like somebody on a crisis intervention mm -hmm. unit that specializes in those various situations they might find themselves in. Yeah, I've, I've been trying to sign up for a ride along with one of those. Um, and it just hasn't manifested. Not, not because I don't want to. But I feel like it's also touchy, like, oh, here's another politician trying to get on into the program. And it's like, so, I mean, either way, I'm going to be going on one at some point. Um, but it's something I genuinely want to uh, partake in just so I can see how it works from my perspective. And, you know, even from there, I mean, the county had its own, I forget, what was it? Uh, yeah. Intervention Services Team, MIST, I think it was called. I can't remember what the acronym stood for. But here we have one at our local level in Eureka, and it seems to be functioning very well. And so we've got to look into that once it's been around long enough to see like, okay, what, what works, what doesn't? Is it the totality of the program or is it just aspects? What changes can we make? Do any need to be changed? Is it sufficient and we can build these other positions or do we take one or two of those and add to this program? Do you think we'll get to a point where in society police presence is diminished overall? Because it seems like that's where a lot of this is building towards mm -hmm. in this move in the abolish the police movement as a whole. It seems there is a a consensus among people in that that if we got rid of a significant portion of the police presence, people would just get along, or or it's just an unnecessary expenditure that we partake in. I'm trying to think because. Even if we're talking about doing it ourselves, it's still policing in a way. It's self-policing. So is it, is it that it would be less structured? Is it that we would be more accountable to each other? I, I don't know those elements of the movement. What I know is that defund has been used as the signal to say reallocation. So that's the perspective I've taken. And so when it comes to the abolition, the abolishment of law enforcement, I don't see that happening in my lifetime. I mean, yeah, it'd be great if we didn't need a lot of those things. It'd be great if the mental health services were already built in. Uh, but, but, but I think at that point, we're venturing more towards a utopia than we are reality.
That's how I feel. Whenever yeah. somebody starts talking about we need to abolish the police, usually it's I get the the feeling that there's there's a lack of reality in that perception. Because people are there are bad people in everything. I was just having this discussion earlier today. There are bad people in everything. <laughs> and the idea that those people are just gonna be good if we got rid of cops is it's great in theory. It would be great if everyone just got along, but that's not the world we live in. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm an optimist as as much as I can be, but there are still times I have to lock my doors. So you I had want... to call somebody when that guy was on your property. Yeah, you had to do that. Yeah, and 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 again, I called non-emergency because it wasn't you know there was no weapon, there was nothing going on that seemed emergent in that situation. It just seemed like someone who needs resources that I don't have. And that law enforcement wouldn't either. But they're the ones who responded because we've given them that duty. And so we need to separate that duty from them. Not because they're bad people. Just because that's not what they're trained for. Even though they should still have some exposure, some training to that, that is not their duty at the end of the day. Yeah, they get a catch-all in a lot of regards, you could say. Yeah. I have to ask, in kind of prepping for this I came across reference to a post-capitalism conference. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you attended? I have not been able to attend any of those since, uh, since living up here. Um, I've been invited to them. I've been asked, and that's because of my attachment to the unions. Um, <clears throat> and so uh, it's just, you know, how do we build worker power? How do we uh, establish uh, unions in the workplace? And so that's what I've always been invited to partake or to, uh, I don't want to say lecture on, but maybe provide some sort of workshop on. And I've never been able to attend just because of my schedule. So what is what is the idea behind that? Is that we're going towards a more socialist idea of society? Or is that just really the foundation of we need to empower workers more than we currently are? I think we're starting to see a lot more worker empowerment. I mean, hell, you have places like Starbucks, Chipotle, Amazon, any of these things that would have been written off a decade ago to let alone five years ago that oh, you can't organize these people don't know what unions are anymore. And for a large swathe of, of my adult life, a lot of people really didn't understand the purpose of unions. Like, okay, like we all have an understanding of the, the mafia teamsters from the 1970s. Sure. But, but beyond that, it was just like, oh, they take my money and might help me with something. It's like, well, no, no, no. It, the the money helps build the infrastructure, but you're building your union. How do you want to see it work in the workplace that you have? And and that's that's been my perspective as long as I've been a part of the labor movement. So what is the attachment to the words post-capitalism? Because people hear that and they start thinking sweating. socialism. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, we're at a point where, from my perspective, uh, capitalism isn't healthy. You know, we're running low on our resources, whether we've exploited them, we're running out of them, or just unable to find them. Uh, what comes after this? What's next? And there are a lot of aspects of of uh, socialism that I like. I'm not going to lie. I what drew me into the Democratic Party was Bernie Sanders, who describes himself as a democratic socialist. And and if we start talking about you know the perspective I have uh, from you know psychology and the uh, the political background and education I have from San Francisco State, I would be a libertarian socialist. And I'm sure there are a lot of folks who are just like, the, how, how the hell does libertarianism and socialism fit together? And, and for me, it's, do we have the programs in place for people to pick themselves up by their bootstraps? No. 
then how can we put that there so people can make those choices on whether or not they want to participate? If they want to experience that positive personal growth, great. If they don't, then they need to understand there are consequences that come from not taking any of these resources. That's not saying that they have to, but that they're, it's there for them. And if they choose not to partake, then it's on them. And if they can do it themselves, great. If they can't, resources are there unless they choose not to. So. Those two terms seem kind of contradictory, though, aren't they? Don't libertarians favor smaller government, mm-hmm. hands-off policy? Yeah. As opposed to socialism would be, okay, we're all riding for each other. Right. It seems like it, but I'm not the one who invented the term. <laughs> but you subscribe to the ideology. I do, yeah. So what is, is that what post-capitalism looks like for you? It does. Do we have programs in place for people to be successful? Right. Do they want to use them? Because we're not mandating that they have to. All right, then. They're good to go. <laughs> this idea of capitalism dying, do you see that happening? In my lifetime? In your lifetime? I, that's a hard one. Um, just because the idea isn't that you know any one political system dies, it's built on going into the next one. And so I don't know if it's ever going to die, uh, but it might change. It might change to look different from what I've grown up with. But again, I don't know if that's going to happen in my lifetime. What, what is your disapproval with capitalism? Is it the aspect of resource utilization or capitalization on those resources? Or why do you, I'm guessing you're not in favor of capitalism. Correct. I think that's safe to say. Yeah. Yeah. Where does that come from? Uh, It could be any number of areas, but I think you hit on it when we were talking about, because I can't think of another way to put it when we talk about exploiting our resources. So whether it's the natural resources, which, you know, we would like to think are infinite, but we seem to be slowly running out of, or even the exploitation of workers themselves. So, you know, whether it's been the depressed wages finally being met up with uh, the increase in minimum wage, but now we have this overarching inflation, which it it just seems like we're going to hit a wall at some point and either we're going to continue on the same path that we've been on, which I don't believe is the case, or we're going to persevere and find something else that works for us. And so whether it's more of uh trying to pull from <laughs> trying to pull from my political education right now and I'm blanking on some stuff but uh if, is it going to be more union oriented at this point as we move forward because that's always felt like well this is a response to how workers have been exploited historically and so what's it going to look like even as that changes over the X number of years. I I don't know, but I again, there's that optimistic part of me, that positive part of me that's like it's going to be for the better. And do you anticipate the uplifting of unions as somewhat paving the path through capitalism? Yeah, they they certainly have their role in lifting up workers to be successful, to be uh above and beyond, well, not above and beyond, but to be part of that working class mentality. There is the idea that we've kind of eroded the working class in this country. <laughs> uh, yeah. Or th- not necessarily the working class, but the middle class mm-hmm. more specifically. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And that, and, and, and that has yeah, been not the mentality. working class, more so the middle class. <laughs> it, it just brings me back to the, 
to the quote, uh, may bastardize it a bit, but I grew up watching George Carlin. And so that's kind of where my humor lies. And I just, I remember that I'd been watching him since I was like eight years old. So like take, <laughs> uh, you know, make of that what you will about parenting. Um, but, but I specifically remember something around the lines of you have the rich, you know, to push at the poor and to try and motivate them. Then you have the middle or I'm sorry, at, at the middle class, then you have the middle class doing all the work and then you have the poor there to scare the shit out of the middle class. And to, to, to some extent, I think that's kind of what happened in 2008 was like the floor fell out of a large portion of the middle class. And they just had never experienced that in their lives or in their generation between families. And so now people are like, well, how do I get back up there? You know, it seems so easy having been there, but how do I build myself back up to that? I, you know, how do I get myself there? Well, you can't do it yourself. <laughs> You've got to be able to have some of these resources to access to get back up there. And so with, with the power of unions, with the power of social programs, I think that's definitely possible. Do you think currently it is more impossible? I think there have been some, well, we haven't gotten quite to the radical changes yet. When I talk about radical, I mean getting to the root of a lot of problems. And I don't think we've gotten quite there where it's been made easier. I don't think it's impossible yet but i think as unions come more into power as people see what they're capable of in the workplace that it will get simpler simpler mm -hmm. to the effect that you don't have to you don't have to maintain three or four side gigs <laughs> as they're as they're like to be called um you don't have to have three or four jobs to make it happen yeah if you want to by all means but that shouldn't be the case shouldn't have to work yourself to death correct just to get by at least we could say that you shouldn't have to work yourself to death just to get by no you should not have to work yourself to death okay all i right. think we could end it on that okay. uh i do have to ask mm -hmm. I could not, your name is Mario. Is that your middle name? Yes. What is your first name? Do you mind if I ask? Well, you want to know what the G stands for? Yeah, because I could not find that. <laughs> any. I was telling Andy about it. I couldn't find it anywhere online. Oh, good, I've been good. I was going to say, it's <laughs> like it's been scrubbed from the internet. There was no reference to it. It's all G and then Mario well, Fernandez. Well, well, yeah, do you know how hard it would be to find Mario Fernandez in California, let alone North America? So at least I've got that one initial to help me stand out from everything. I'm surprised you didn't find the football player from the UK. So oh, I might have come across. There are a lot. There are a lot. Is that, have you just always gone by Mario? You don't use your first name? I don't. My, my mom has never called me by my first name. Always Mario. Yeah. So the only time I get called by my first name is usually in dealing with, you know, law enforcement or the courts or like first time visit to the doctor. And it's always so jarring. Like, what did I do? You're that. My full name is Nicholas, and mm -hmm. my parents are really the only ones that call me that. Other than, I guess, now with the podcast, it's Nicholas. Mm -hmm. But for the longest time, that was a sign of, oh, I did something wrong. Somebody's calling me Nicholas? Okay. What did I do? <laughs> do you want to say what it is, or do you want to keep that? Oh, I, 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 I mean, I come up with a lot of things. There's a great uh, plethora of G words out there, so my favorite is grandstanding, Mario Fernandez. Do you have a – but you do have a I G. do. Okay, I do. okay. <laughs> I just, Gregarious is a good one. 
Okay. Uh, the, the, the one I like to, when I'm talking with, um, uh, my, uh, Latino side of the family is Guarito. <laughs> Cause I am the light skinned one. <laughs> so, but it's Gregory. Gregory. Gregory okay. Yeah. <laughs> and always by Mario. Yeah. Huh. Okay. All right. Well, now my mystery has been solved. We can officially <laughs> wrap this podcast. Uh, Mario, this was a blast. I yeah. really enjoyed talking with you. I appreciate you, uh, coming out with this offer so yeah i was happy to sit down and talk with you do you I, want to plug where people can find you where they can find sure, your campaign yeah. so uh you know I, I would hope people would vote for g mario fernandez on the upcoming ballot for eureka city ward three uh they're welcome to reach out to me i'm very responsive on social media i've got my instagram at vote g mario uh, facebook at uh vote g mario and my website vote so you can see where it was all coming together with that and thankfully nobody else had those domains <laughs> okay well mario thanks really i appreciated this likewise